morning, IBC family. I love the, the worship set that we are able to experience together. You'll see a theme all throughout, and that theme is really the presence of God, and uh, I'll speak to that more fully in the sermon. Some of you know this, some of you may not know this, but uh, one of the things I did as a young child, actually in grade school and all the way pretty much what kind of predominated my focus in a lot of ways was I wrestled. Uh, that was my sport of choice. I like to run a lot too, and so I got the living water. I ran last year with the living water. And, and, uh, but the, the sport that I picked as my, my sport was wrestling. And so um, it all started in second grade and just kind of continued from on there. And I loved it. I loved the fact that, well, a boy could just be a boy and wrestle, and it was legal. And it was okay. And no one would actually argue. On the mat, all of a sudden, anything went, and that was okay. So it was a great time. Of course, by the time I got to high school, things would get extremely competitive. And, uh, and if you really want to compete, you really have to kind of, kind of keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. And so one of the realities, though I know it's changed pretty significantly now, but one of the realities when I was wrestling in high school and even in the college was this. Everybody cut weight. Do you know what I mean when I say cut weight? It means this really unhealthy approach to uh, losing weight, and I know there's all kinds of diet fads. This is one of the worst diet fads out there. Basically, you deprive yourself of food and water, and it's, it's, you know, it's classic. You take in way less calories than you're consuming or burning off, and therefore you lose weight dramatically. Unfortunately, however, you do this in a very unhealthy manner. And, uh, and so basically, uh, all throughout the week, leading up to the weigh-ins or to each tournament each weekend, you'd be kind of cutting weight. Monday, Tuesday, you could kind of get away with it a little bit more, but come Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, you're leaving on the trip, is all about making weight. And you don't want to go way below your weight. You wanted to squeak in just right. And if you stand at the scale, all it has to do is tip off the top, and then you made weight. And so, and you'd be, you'd be, uh, exhaling every little ounce of air possible, and part of the process of making weight was dehydrating yourself. So to this day, in fact, actually I'm looking at Jan here right now, um, it wasn't until the Bailey range that my, my, my palate for Skittles and Starburst was resurrected, because uh, before that time, I hated them. I hated Skittles and Starburst. You know why? Because they were a means to spit water out of my body into a, a jar. Now, I know I'm getting really disgusting here, but basically I'd fill up bottles of, of saliva just to cut weight, just to make weight, and then, of course, after weigh-ins, you'd try to get it all back again. And uh, by the way, I don't recommend this in any stretch, in any way at all, but that was my reality in wrestling. I didn't love that aspect. I hated that aspect of it, if I could just use the harshest word possible. But here's one thing that predominated my whole thinking. Here's, here's one thing that was just dominant in my dream life, if I had one, and it was this. Food and water. That's all I thought about. All we ever thought about was food and water. And so much so, I mean, we would put water in our mouth but not swallow it, just to kind of get the, the, the little bit of taste of water, kind of rehydrate the mouth, put more chapstick on the lips, and every night, we just, I'd just go to bed going, oh, I can't wait to that moment of weigh-in. And even on Friday weigh-ins, you had to kind of be careful because you still had to weigh-in Saturday morning, so you couldn't go too crazy. But Saturday morning weigh-ins, ooh, 
You could just let loose and just guzzle the water. And obviously our bodies needed it. But I think about it all the time. It was so funny, actually, because uh, we'd always have this kind of ongoing joke every season, and throughout the season, as you're kinda, your body's getting tired of cutting weights, uh, we would talk about or going, I just can't wait to get the ultimate supersized meal, the last weigh-in at State. No more weigh-ins. We would go to, we would, I couldn't wait to just go to McDonald's and have the, the unhealthiest meal and the biggest portion possible, and we couldn't even finish a Happy Meal. Because our stomach is, was so small that we, you know, our, our minds were huge. We just, we just kind of salivated over the idea of eating something so grand and we couldn't even finish it. Why do I even relate this in the first place? I relate this because Jesus actually makes reference to our hunger and our thirst to help us realize a very profound spiritual need that you and I have. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'm going to take just a minute or two basically to kind of bring us up to speed as to where we are at today. I know every week we've been kind of reiterating some of the key themes that have gone on, but I think it's important that we understand uh, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here, especially as he starts it with what we call the Beatitudes. Now you recall the first Beatitude or the the first uh, lesson that Jesus was speaking here is this. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, verse three, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is really helping us understand more fully, what he's helping us to, uh, seek to uh, believe more fully is that the, the one who is blessed in life, the one who is truly happy and fulfilled in life is not someone who gains by their effort but realizes instead that they are spiritually bankrupt before God. It sounds a little counterintuitive, I understand, but Jesus is helping us understand counterintuitive kingdom principles. Recall, after all, that the reason why Jesus is preaching this, among many reasons, but the point he's getting at is this. He wants us to understand this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. These are the values, these are the priorities of heaven's kingdom and therefore he's telling me, he's telling these Jewish people, this Jewish audience, but even to us today, you want to understand what the Christian life is. If you understand what God values and prioritizes in life, then understand it in this way. And in very uh, specific or explicit fashion, Jesus kind of hones in on the heart and says, you know what, I don't really care about the outward actions necessarily, though I do, But I care about your heart even more so because out of a transformed heart, so will your actions follow. And so you see Jesus is really getting at the heart of the matter. He's really making sure that our hearts are becoming more like Christ because in turn we will live like Christ. And so we see that he says, foundationally speaking, The first thing you and I must understand above all things is that you are spiritually bankrupt before God. 
In fact, the one who is truly blessed and happy in life realizes they have nothing to bring to the table and therefore, like the tax collector, like the, the woman who was caught in adultery, is fully dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God. If we were to summarize it in a different way, we could say this. Jesus is saying the one who is truly happy in life is the one who realizes that they are in full dependence upon God and not themselves. And secondly, he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, verse four, for they shall be comforted. The person who mourns is also happy. And again, it sounds counterintuitive. Happy are the people that cry? I don't understand how this is working here. Well, Jesus is saying the one who is truly happy and blessed in this life is the one who is not only aware of their spiritual bankruptcy, but as a result, responds emotionally to this real state. This is the emotional response, a sincere sorrow over one's sin. Not just understanding that I am guilty before God, but really feeling the weight of that sin, understanding the sinfulness of your sin. In a sense, almost being weighed down necessarily. Jesus goes on to say in verse five, as Pastor Mike preached last week, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. As Mike defined for us, the meek are not weak, but the meek, to be meek or to, to, to embody the virtue of humility and gentleness is really strength that is controlled, power that is under control. And the reason why someone would actually be able to have strength under control is because they know who they are. They know they have nothing to bring to the table. They know they are spiritually bankrupt before God. In fact, their hearts are weighed down in a, in, a, in a heavy way of their sinfulness and therefore they don't come around in this boastful, cocky attitude, but instead they are gentle. They are humble because they realize they out of anybody are most dependent upon God's grace and mercy. That brings us to the fourth beatitude. Jesus says in verse six once again, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they are the one that will be satisfied. What does Jesus mean when he refers to hunger and thirst? What is Jesus getting at? Why why is he using a very common everyday need that you and I have on a daily basis uh, to, to make a spiritual point well we need to understand the kind of hunger or the kind of thirst that Jesus is referencing here and in your first point we see this the kind of hunger and thirst Jesus refers to is someone who is starving we're not talking about someone who has skipped a meal we're not talking about someone who is looking forward to breakfast after a nice long sleep through the night We're talking about somebody who is desperately hungry, who is desperately thirsty. And of course, we may not understand it today, and I love the fact that we are able to do our living water promo today because there are many people in the world today who understand firsthand what it's like to go without water for days and days and days to the point of almost dying. Have you ever seen someone who hasn't drank anything for days? Have you ever seen them drink when they have the opportunity? 
Have you ever seen someone who's been starving for maybe weeks all of a sudden get their hands on a, a morsel of food? Well, one thing we can understand about someone who is truly starving or someone who is extremely thirsty is that they, they cannot think about anything else but the desire to meet that physical need. It's an all-consuming desire. It's an all-consuming focus. In other words, when, when someone is starving or someone extremely thirsty, it's amazing the kind of uh, the, the, the lengths they will go in order to meet that need. And that's why someone who is maybe uh, you know, abandoned at sea, they'll even drink the salt water, even though that will kill them quicker. But anything seems better than nothing. You'll see people that will eat rotten food or even eat gravel just to get some kind of something in their stomach. It's almost as if what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, it's like the, the newborn babe who yearns for the pure milk of God's word. All you young parents in the room, I know you can understand very firsthand. All parents can understand firsthand. But when a newborn baby wants milk, they will cry long enough and they will cry loud enough until they get what they want. And the whole cry out method, I wish it worked universally, but it does not. The point that Jesus is getting at is this. He's referring to an intense physical Need an intense physical craving to describe the kind of spiritual intensity that you and I are called to exert as disciples of Jesus. Just as a starving person can think nothing is all consumed about getting some food or just like someone who is thirsty who has been, who's been parched for days and is really desperate to get some sort of like cup of cold, refreshing water. So Jesus says, I want you to hunger or thirst in this way. It's just I want you to hunger and thirst in this way for righteousness. It's why I love what David says in Psalm 63 when he says, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. He says similar words in Psalm 42. When David says, as the deer longs for or pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? Once again, the, the, the intensity that Jesus is making reference to here, what Jesus is really trying to get at or help us understand is this. The one who is blessed in life, The one who is truly happy and satisfied and fulfilled in this life is not someone who does life on their terms, but instead the person who hungers, who thirsts, much like that of a starving person, after the righteousness of God. You can can pick up pretty quickly that this is not a casual pursuit of righteousness. This is not a, a recommendation or this is not an add-on to the very, various pursuits that we all have in life. No. Jesus is saying the blessed person is the one who is obsessed with the righteousness of God. 
The one who is truly blessed in this life is one who has an all-consuming determination for the righteousness of God. So let me ask you this, IBC family. Would you say that you hunger for God's righteousness in this way? Would you say that you hunger or thirst for righteousness at all? Perhaps you may be asking this question, what is righteousness? I know that it's a biblical term, but what exactly is the righteousness of God that I'm supposed to be consumed by? I think when you take a, a survey of Scripture, though I don't want to minimize it or simplify it too much, but for the sake of understanding, I think we can understand God's righteousness really in three aspects. There are three aspects to God's righteousness that are helpful for us to kind of understand the holistic nature of what God means by his holiness or his righteousness. One aspect of righteousness is this. There's a legal aspect of righteousness. This is what the Apostle Paul makes reference to in the book of Romans, for example. When, If you want an exhaustive explanation of the gospel of Jesus, just read the, the book of Romans. The first four chapters tell us, tells you how bad you really are. It's great. It's super encouraging. You read it and you go, wow. But it's so necessary because once you realize how bad you really are as God sees you, then you understand your need for his grace. And this is where the next four chapters really jump right in. They're going, but isn't God amazing? Look how bad you really are, but look how amazing God is. And so Paul says in this amazing transitional verse, Romans 5.1, therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So on one aspect, one aspect of righteousness is understanding that we who were once guilty before God now stand innocent. And as we understand, if you are innocent before God, then therefore you are righteous as he is righteous. Not because you actually are, but because God says you are. Not because you actually are, because when you are clothed with Christ, when you are filled with Christ, therefore you have the righteousness of Christ. You are credited with his righteousness. That's the reason why God says you are innocent, you are pure, because I see Jesus in you. Now, of course, because of that, there goes on, what follows that is a moral righteousness. The legal righteousness lends itself or leads to a moral righteousness. In other words, because we have been cleansed by God, because we are filled with Christ, therefore what is expected or what is naturally flowing from that relationship with God that has now been mended, that has now been restored, there's an expectation. In other words, we live differently. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live as to the Lord. We live a life that is reflecting the righteousness of God. That's why uh, Matthew will say in verse 20, or Jesus will say in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
The legal aspect of righteousness is something that God does for us even in our sin. The moral aspect of righteousness is something that we now, because of what God has done, this is now what he expects. This is how he expects us to live life. And what I love about the rest of the chapter in chapter five, though I won't go into exhaustive detail now because we'll get to it eventually, but we see that when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he goes on in verse 21 all the way through the end of the chapter to explain what he means by that. For example, just to kind of tantalize your taste buds here, he says, you shall not kill. That's pretty easy to acknowledge or accept. But then Jesus goes on to qualify that. You shall not kill or you shall not murder, but I tell you, even if you harbor a sustained anger towards somebody, then you are still guilty in your heart. Even if you harbor bitterness or an unwilling to forgive regardless of the offense, then you are still guilty of murder in your heart. Once again, Jesus is honing in on the heart. Or for example, we can say, you shall not commit adultery. We can all acknowledge that probably in here pretty safely, like that is wrong. At the same time, he also says, but anyone who looks at a person lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. You get the picture. Living a life in Christ means that there is a moral obligation. There is a moral righteousness. We don't just receive salvation and we say, thanks God and I go and do what I want to do on my terms and my way and my timing. No, when we are saved by the grace of God, we are therefore walking in step with God. We are filled with Christ and therefore we are walking with Christ so that we might reflect Christ. And what flows even from that one step further is that as God continually transforms us, as that vertical relationship is continually being restored and and encouraged and strengthened, it does transform or translate in the way in which we live life morally. And even, more, even further than that, it also translates in the way in which we relate to one socially. That's the third aspect of righteousness. There's a social righteousness. We might actually call it social justice. Now, I know social justice is a very trendy phrase or catchphrase today. In fact, if you were to talk to anybody, you might say social justice, and they would have a certain definition or idea of what that means. But let me explain to you what social justice is through the lens of scripture. Let me just say it right up front because I'm not gonna go in detail about this. We can talk later if you want. But social justice must always proceed from a legal and moral righteousness. In other words, you cannot divorce the social justice or social righteousness from the legal and moral righteousness. And by the way, the gospel is not social justice. It is an expression of the gospel. It is what you would probably do as a result of the gospel, but it is not the gospel itself. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's why Jesus, even in his ministry, never divorced the social from the spiritual. He was always forgiving sins in conjunction with his healing of people. 
It's important that you and I understand that there is a real, there is a real social element to our righteousness. You could look at the book of 1 John, for example, even James. Very practical books in which they, they tell us, how can you say you have faith and yet at the same time not love your brother and sister? How can you say you love God and yet show no love towards one another? In other words, social righteousness or social justice, and I'm using those terms synonymously, is an expression of what it means to walk with Jesus. But it, we must understand that we do so because of Jesus. We do so because of a relationship with Jesus. We do so because we have been declared righteous before God, because we are seeking to honor and glorify God, and therefore that's why we love one another. In a sense, if we were to summarize this whole aspect of righteousness, we could call it holiness. It's really a reflection of who God is. This righteousness that Jesus says he, that we are to hunger and thirst for is really a hunger for the holiness of God. To be like him, it's as Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, verse 48. It's a hunger to be like our heavenly Father. I think as we apply this in a very personal way, we must understand, as I already alluded to before, that this pursuit of righteousness, this pursuit of God's holiness, is not an optional pursuit for the believer. As I said before, this is not a recommendation. Jesus here is not saying, hey, would you just consider this? He's not pleading with us to just strongly consider becoming righteous. No, what he's saying is, in a very matter-of-fact sort of way, you must pursue me like this. The truly blessed life is a life that pursues the righteousness of God, much like that of a starving person or someone who is parched in the most intense sort of way. The pursuit of righteousness could be equated to basically, uh, it's a, it, I would say, is, is as important as water is to a fish. It's a non-negotiable. And the reason why it's a non-negotiable because it's your life that depends upon it. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says this, he, if you don't know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is, he's uh, had a long tenure. He's now since with the Heavenly Father, but um, he was a preacher in England and made a very profound impact in England during his time. He says this about verse six of Matthew five. He says, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of Christian profession that a verse like this portrays. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. What is Martin getting at here? What is Jesus getting at here? What they're saying is this. A litmus test 
or an indicator of where your heart is truly at is reflected by the kind of hunger and thirst you have for the things of God, specifically the righteousness of God. The mark of a true or genuine, healthy disciple of Jesus is reflected in how we hunger and how we thirst after the righteousness of God. So let me just ask you once again for the sake of your own personal reflection. Do you hunger for God like this? Do you thirst for his righteousness like this? Do you believe that God's righteousness is more valuable than anything or anyone in this world? You know, it's interesting, and I'm just going to get off my notes here, but even as Christians, there are many things that can be an all-consuming focus that even in a subtle sort of way replace what ought to be our primary focus. Our service for God. Our ministries. Our ambitions for the sake of the kingdom. All those can even be a subtle replacement for what ought to be our primary pursuit. And what I believe Jesus is teaching us here is that the pursuit of God's righteousness is of the utmost importance. It ought to be an all-consuming pursuit. It's interesting, when I'm, I've been working on my dissertation off and on this year, and I've been interviewing a lot of pastors who have retired who are in kind of in a reflective stage of their life and ministry, And I always ask this question at the end of my interview. We've talked about a lot of things. These interviews go for a couple hours apiece. And I just said, you know what? Let's say I forget everything that we just talked about. What should I never, ever forget? And I would say almost always they come back to this point. Regardless of your ministry, regardless of what you do, regardless of your preaching, regardless of all the many activities, regardless of everything, Aaron, do not Cease to pursue God. Because your whole ministry will flow as a result. It's easy to fake it till you make it for a while. But this is foundational to the Christian life. And we see that Jesus even gives us a promise here. It says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in this way, much like a starving person, that is the person who will be satisfied. What we see here about the satisfaction that Jesus promises is this. The promise is really the presence of Jesus. It is the presence of Jesus. To be satisfied or to be filled as Jesus promises is not only something that is done to us, it's not always something that is done for us, but we see that the satisfaction is something that we gain because of Christ's presence in us and with us. 
It's not something that God goes, hey, let me just add this to your life real quickly. It's actually, I am your satisfaction. I am your filling. It's why Jesus will say in John 6.35, for example, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 54 of that same chapter, but anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise that person at the last day. John seven thirty seven and 38, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. I love what Jesus says to the woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman in John chapter four. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, you get the picture, right? What Jesus has promises, what the, the filling that Jesus promises that he promises to satisfy you with is not something that he just gives you or something that he kind of sprinkles into your life to make you a little happier. No, he says, I promise me. Remember when we went through the heaven series? We talked about what heaven is and sometimes we can very quickly go, oh, it's streets of gold, pearly gates, St. Peter, all this kind of stuff. We have these certain ideas and images of heaven, but really heaven is God. Because this goes right back to the very beginning. God created us to be in perfect fellowship with himself. There was perfect harmony, perfect unity You and I are designed, we're created to be in relationship with God, but sin corrupted and broke that relationship, and now God once again is restoring that relationship. And so when we think about what a truly happy life is, or what a satisfied life is, it is not what God can do for you, it is God himself with you. That's the blessed life. That is a life that is truly happy. Now the irony is this, on one hand, you are satisfied, but on the other hand, you are never satisfied. Wait a second, didn't, he, didn't Jesus just say, I'm going to be satisfied? We need to understand it like this, yes, you will be filled, you will be satisfied. God promises to do that, but as you taste and see that the Lord is good, the only conclusion you'll make is, I want more. When you experience the presence of God in your life and you know that when you have those encounters, he's like, wow, you know it. The spirit of God has spoken. The spirit of Christ has spoken. He's made himself very evident in your life. There's no doubt in your mind in those moments. And you go, I don't want to stop this. I want to keep this going. Lord, I want more of you. I go to Costco once a month. It's a double cart trip to Costco. And we go around and I, of course I take, usually take a, one of the kids, older kids get to go with me and be help and try to push this filled cart. But one of the, the perks or one of the ways I entice them to come to Costco is the free lunch that comes with Costco. <laughs> So Costco in their mind is basically you make two laps and you get a free lunch. You know, it's not even what you do after you check out. It's all the 
the hors d'oeuvres and the, the appetizers, right? And so we go around, we make our rounds, and we're just kind of in and out, in and out, and we kind of trying to, I'm trying to keep to the list at the same time, trying to splurge and eat food that I would never buy otherwise. And by the way, does anybody actually take the box that they have on display there? I mean, you take it, and you're like, oh, I want more of that. I, I never have yet, but um, maybe you do. I don't know. I know that's the point of it all. The point is to market to your taste buds so that you will actually make a purchase, and they're like, you know what? We could just put this in display. This could be in the freezer section. You could look at it and go, oh, maybe that's good. I don't know. It's like, well, actually, how about we just give you a little taste and then maybe you'll be that much more convinced. Maybe you will want more. I think in the same way, as we experience Christ, on one hand, we are satisfied, yes. But on the other hand, we are unsatisfied because we always want more. And we will always want more on this side of eternity because until we are fully in the presence of God, we will never truly be ultimately satisfied. It doesn't mean that his presence isn't with us, but we will always be wanting until we are fully in his presence. The fact is, unless we are satisfied with the presence of Christ, you will always be left wanting. Please understand, church family, if you are seeking to be satisfied or filled or content by looking to so many other things and maybe other people, you will always be left wanting. you will never be filled. St. Augustine, he says this, thou madest us for thyself and my heart is restless until it rests in thee. And so Jesus says, blessed is the one who hungers and who thirsts for righteousness because that is the person who will be satisfied. That is the person who will be filled. Not filled because of what God gives you, but because what he gives you is himself. I won't go into grave detail because it's in your sermon notes there, but I think there's five uh, ways in which we can reflect or even ask the question, how do I know if I am being, if I'm pursuing righteousness as I ought to. And there's just five uh, characteristics or descriptions there uh, that are, you know, for your conversations later this week, but I'll just kind of briefly touch on them real quickly. The first way in which you and I can have an idea if we properly hunger and thirst for righteousness as we ought to is that we have a dissatisfaction with our own righteousness. The way in which you know that you have a proper hunger or thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of God is because you have a dissatisfaction with your own righteousness. In other words, you make the conclusion, my righteousness stinks, but the righteousness of God is life-giving. 
We can relate with what Paul says. My righteousness is that of filthy rags, but the righteousness of God is eternal. And it's good. A second thing is that we have a freedom from dependence upon external things for the, satisfac- the satisfaction we seek. In other words, we realize or we, be- we believe all the more that I will only truly be satisfied in life when I receive and experience more of God. Thirdly, there's a craving for God's word. Understanding that God's word is the primary way that you and I come to know him and experience him by what he's already revealed to us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't speak to us today, but we understand that daily he speaks to us and he wants us to be about his word, his inspired and eternal word. Fourthly, that we love the things of God. The way in which you know you have a proper hunger and thirst for God and his holiness is that you actually love the things of God. To give a kind of a negative example to this, imagine if you were to say to your spouse, honey, I love you, but I don't really like anything you like. See how that goes over. But someone who's truly seeking after God is also in turn in love with the things of God. The things that matter to God also matter to you. Fifth and finally, unconditional acceptance of God's righteousness no matter the cost or means by which God provides it. What do I mean by that? Let me just give a quick explanation. We must understand, church family, that as we've talked about many times before, God's number one goal for you and for me is your transformation. God loves you too much. He loves you too much that you would remain as you are. And he has every intention to remake you, to sanctify you, to transform you into his likeness so that you might more, most fully reflect the righteousness of God. And you know what? God does whatever it takes to accomplish that purpose. God will go through great lengths and he will use all circumstances to accomplish that transforming purpose. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks even now. We thank you for the the way in which your word ministers to our hearts. We thank you for the fact that you, because you love us, you tell us sometimes the hard truths, but but the truths that truly set us free to understand what life is all about. And Father, we all have many ambitions and pursuits in this life. We all have many things that we long and and desire for and things that we want to accomplish and things that we want to achieve and all these different things. But in the end, Father, may we be found faithful. Faithful in a way that is seeking your righteousness above all things. May we be a church that cares most 
about holiness, becoming more like you. We ask these things in your wonderful and your glorious name. Amen.